be that as it may, I'm going to try to cram it in there. Okay? So let's read the first 18 verses. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to look at anybody who told me to do that, but be that as it may. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Now the apostles and brethren who were in, Jeru in Judea heard that the Gentiles as all had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem to those of the circumcision, contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a sheet, a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently, I considered. I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, uh, cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the, house, the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Then they, when they all heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Father, we ask that God, you would go before us, Lord that you would help me to put everything in order here, Lord God, to be able to share this chapter with my brothers and sisters. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, now we don't know exactly how the church in Jerusalem found out about what was happening in Caesarea. But again, we are told that, that Peter lodged there or stayed with them for a few days. Um, 
Peter was in this house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and so he's hanging out with them. And because he had been there for a few days, we know that there was at least six guys who had gone with him from Joppa. It is quite possible, I'm not quite sure, but I'm just speculating here, that maybe some of those guys went all the way back to Jerusalem to give a report of what had happened in Caesarea. Because this was huge, as I shared last, last week with you. It was big. It was epic if you remember. It was something that was, that was happening there. And so what, what's going on now as we get into chapter 11, it's not like this homecoming for Peter because he has been traveling for quite a while. He has been this itinerant p- uh, preacher throughout all the regions, and, and, and we don't know exactly how, it, uh, how long he was gone, but it wasn't like this grand homecoming for Peter and, and to join together with the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. This is more like a council meeting. This is more like they're questioning him. But it's even more than just questioning him. They're, they're, they're like indicting him. It, it, it's like they, they've, they've come together and they're accusing him of doing something bad. And in their eyes, it was. And and it's interesting because here we have them contending with Peter. And that phrase, contend with him, means that they disputed. They reproved him. They charged him with being in fault, is what that, that phrase, contended with, means. That he was at fault with something. That's why they're disputing But understand that this word contended is the same Greek word that is used in the phrase doubting nothing. Doubting nothing is is the portion that we saw back in in the last chapter in verse 20 where the Lord told them, hey, Peter, go with them doubting nothing. It's interesting because, again, he tells them that in verse 12 of this chapter. No, this is the way it went, guys. God showed up, the Spirit told me, and He says, don't doubt anything here, you just go with them. And so that that word contending and that phrase doubting nothing have the same Greek word attached to them. It means to make a difference. But, But with Peter... When the Holy Spirit was telling them to go, what he was basically telling them is, I don't want you to contend with those guys who have just showed up. I don't want you to dispute with them. Doubt nothing. Go with them. Don't make a difference here. Don't make a distinction. Ask no questions. They will tell you no lies. type stuff, right? Just go with them. Why? Because God was doing something very, very important in Peter's life because he was beginning to break down that middle wall of separation. That middle wall of partition was coming down. But to the guys back in Jerusalem, that wall of separation was still up. They hadn't got the memo yet. (laughs) God hadn't spoken to them that he was using Peter to break down this whole middle wall that had separated the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, these guys understood because they're learning the Scriptures, they knew the Scriptures, that at one point the the Gentiles will be coming into the family. Again, the Jews knew that. The Pharisees knew that. Deuteronomy explained that to them. I think I shared that last week. 
And so these guys here, again, they don't know that God is doing something grand, something spectacular, something that is so epic that these guys quite, they don't quite get it because when they come back, and I'm sure the guys that came back told them, hey, Matt, no, this is what's going on. God is breaking down that middle wall between the Gentile and the Jews. And so this is big. This is huge, what is happening or what had happened in Caesarea. Because nothing like this has happened before. And this was so out of the ordinary for them. God was somehow working outside the box that these Jewish guys, they were Jews, they came into Christ, but they still had some of that Jewish culture behind them. And so they, 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 they actually thought, a lot of them did, that in order to really get to know Christ, you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. And so this is blowing their mind. This is so out of the ordinary. Now, I totally understand being cautious, <laughs> being very careful of things that are new, that are introduced to a church. Now, again, we have 2,000 years under our belt. We have the Word of God that kind of tells us what we should and should not do. But even some of those gray areas where some churches do this and some churches don't do that, and they, you know, there's still that, that stuff. And so as, as a Christian, as a believer, and then as a pastor, we need to be testing everything that comes in. we got to make sure that it, it aligns with the Word of God. We have to make sure that it is biblical. And this is why... I've been sharing with you guys for the last couple of weeks in our studies that I believe this is why it had to be Peter that was sent to Caesarea to go teach and preach with Cornelius, even though Philip, the evangelist, had been living in Caesarea for quite a while. He was more of a Hellenist. He was not fully Jew, if you will. <laughs> he was a Greek Jew. That's why I believe that it had to be Peter. Because Peter was the one that was going to have to come back and give an account for what was going on. Peter was as Jewish as they came. And so they understood this. And God needed to use Peter in this way. Let me read to you the first four verses out of the Amplified so you can get a, a better picture of what this, what's going on here. In verse 1 it says, Now the apostles, special messengers, and brethren who were throughout Judea heard with astonishment that the Gentiles, heathens, had received and accepted and welcomed the word of God, the doctrine concerning the part, uh, attainment through Christ of salvation for, in the kingdom of, of God. Verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, certain Jewish Christians found fault with him, separating themselves from him in a hostile spirit, opposing and disputing and contending with him. Verse 3, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and even eat with them? But Peter began at the beginning and narrated and explained to them step by step the whole list of events. What I find fascinating here as we kind of get a, a broader picture of this contention that's kind of going on, 
What I find fascinating is not just that the apostles, the, the, these brethren in, in Jerusalem, that they were astonished, but that God had called the Gentiles. They kind of were okay with that, kind of, that God had called in the Gentiles. But that what they're having a really super hard time with is the fact that Peter went and ate with these uncircumcised men. They were having a hard time with that. Now, I know that this is a cultural thing. This was a cultural thing for the Jewish people, that they considered the Gentiles the heathens, dogs, if you will. They, 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 they looked at them as a lesser class, if you will, and they wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles. And so this is a cultural thing. But how old is the church at this point? At this time? It's about 8 to 10 years old. And they're still holding on to certain cultural things. Again, they, they've become new creations. And yet there's still things from their culture that they have brought into the church. I'm not saying it was a bad thing, but they're having a hard time with this. Because it's almost, and to me, this is just me. To me, they're becoming a little too religious. Kind of pharisaical, if you will. You remember, because these guys should be remembering that when Jesus kind of sat with sinners and tax collectors, that it was the Pharisees that were having a hard time with that. And Jesus rebukes them, and he rebukes them in front of these guys. And yet now these guys who are now in Christ, who have been walking with the Lord in the church for about eight years, they're still having a problem with that. Again, it's a cultural thing. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and I understand 8 years, 10 years in the church is relatively new, but here we are 2,000 years later, and guess what? We're still dealing with what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. What churches allow and what they don't allow. And again, guys, I'm not on the liberal side of this. I, I would tend to be more on the conservative side of things in my life and as a Christian. But at the same time, I never want to put God in a box and say, God, this is the only way you can truly move. Because that's the way our church, that's the way Calvary Chapels do it. And don't you go outside of that. See, and again, as, as much as, as, as we want to be open to what God has for us, we got to be careful and test things that we just don't allow anything to go on and to where it's out of order because God is a God of order and we want to be biblical in what we allow and what we don't allow. When we do something or don't do something, again, it might not be your taste. There's other churches that might be your taste, <laughs> And that's why I think we have a diversity of churches. Everybody says, well, why can't we all just come together? And I get that. And I think in the broader sense, we are. But some people are going, no way, Jose. A pastor should stand right behind the pulpit and never walk around. <laughs> oh, I've heard those things. And the next pastor, man, he's all over the place, man. He's like, wah, wah, wah. It's like... Ah, 
Again, there's, there's different styles. And, and, and again, some people are more liberal in their thinking as far as the culture or the church. And again, man, I just want to be whatever God's showing me and convicting me of and the way we run our church. And again, man, God bless you guys because this is part of your church. But if you get to a point where you're going, dude, I just, I, you're not my cup of tea anymore. It's like, thank God, man, there's some other churches all over the place. Go find out where you fit. And so, again, this is a cultural thing that is going on here. But they, the, see, these guys, they didn't have another church to go to. <laughs> they only had one church. They couldn't go down the street. <laughs> And what I like about the book of Acts is that God is moving. And He is moving in a way that is beyond culture. Okay? That's why I believe that Christianity can fit anywhere in any time period. Because Christianity actually transcends culture. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And I can guarantee you, as much as it fits here, it can fit in China or in India. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying He will tell you how to live your life. He will tell you what's acceptable and not acceptable. And so I truly believe that Christianity can work here in feeling as it does in Victorville or in Orange County. You know what I'm saying? It transcends even the movements that are going on. And so, again, what God is doing here is something that is so out of the ordinary. And, the, the, and what's happening here is, is huge because He's changing the landscape of the church. Now, understand, these guys had not crossed those roads before. We have crossed many roads as time has gone on. There's certain things that we allow, certain things that we don't allow. For them... The landscape was barely changing. Things were getting established. And so I can understand them having a little beef with Peter of what was going on. But it's interesting because they're still going to have issues about this later on as we move on. But God is moving in a way that is out of the ordinary. And He's using a man like Peter to do this. In verse 5, it says that Peter here, from about 5 to 15, Peter, Peter retells the story that, that we have covered for the last couple of weeks. He, he tells the, 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 the apostles what actually went on. I'm not saying that the guys that, that had come before maybe and, and, and told these guys didn't tell them the facts, but I think they needed to hear it from the horse's mouth. Peter was the one involved here. And so what I find fascinating also is that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts here, saw it fit to retell the story three different times in two chapters. So I think this is huge for the church to understand that God was moving in such a way that he, he repeats it three different times so that we could understand that this is not a small matter that has gone on. We're in it the third time covering this whole thing once again. And Peter's having to explain himself, no, really, this is what happened. He shares the facts with them. And everything has been lining up 
He hasn't changed the story. He hasn't embellished the story. I'm sure you can go through all three stories and say, well, he didn't say this and this. But, but it's not far-fetched. It's all right in, in there. And so in verse 16, as he has shared this story and telling them this is what actually happened, in verse 16, as he tells them, then the Holy Spirit fell upon them as he did upon us. And I remembered, I remembered what Jesus told us back in chapter 1, verse 5. But, but John was the first one who said this back in Mark chapter 1, verse 8. Where, where he says, John the Baptist says, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but there comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said the same thing in the first chapter of Acts here, where he says, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it was right before he ascends. And he tells him, hey, I need you to wait, and then it's going to come upon you. And I love that Peter... In verse 17, Peter says, Who was I that I would withstand God? <laughs> well, we all know that Peter was no stranger of withstanding God. <laughs> to where at one point Jesus says, Hey, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> because Peter was that kind of guy. But he's saying, Who am I? And they're probably going, We know you, Pete. <laughs> we know what you're all about. But you see, what Peter was actually saying is like, man, this was way beyond me that I couldn't help it. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't ma manufacture it. I didn't do anything. They just wanted me to preach, preacher boy. And I, I was preaching it up. And, and in the middle of this whole thing, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. It's like, oh, geez, okay. I didn't do anything. He's basically telling them. Because they're probably thinking, what did you do, Pete? What, what we saw last week, as well as now, is that God was not showing any partiality here. The same Spirit that fell upon the Jews to, 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 to become Christian or believers had actually now fell upon the Gentiles as well. And Peter reminded the brethren of what happened to them on the day of Pentecost. You see, on the day of Pentecost, all they were told to do is wait in the upper room until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And they just waited. They didn't do anything. They didn't conjure anything up. They weren't running around. They weren't praying louder. They weren't, you know, whatever they were thinking of doing. They weren't doing anything. They just received it. They were sitting there and they were waiting. That's what they were told to do. And it says that the Holy Spirit fell upon each and every one of them. There was 120 of them, and every one of them experienced the same thing that day in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And, and he's saying, guys, we didn't do anything. We, we, we didn't manufacture anything. We just received it as a gift because that's what it is. It's a gift. And guess what? They received the same gift. I couldn't stop it. They didn't do anything. They didn't pay me enough. They didn't do anything and Peter's basically saying, who am I to stop what God wants to do? And I would ask us, who am I? Who are we? <laughs> who are we to say that, only God, that God can only work in certain ways? He can only work at certain times or with certain people. 
when we have the Word of God complete and it tells us that whosoever believes in Him has the right to become children of God. Whosoever. And I think sometimes we have our, our prejudices to say, oh, I don't know, I don't think you said it right. I don't think you did that right. I don't know if it took with you. Who are we to say that? God can do whatever He wants in spite of how we do things or how we don't do things. God is able. If I don't do an altar call at the end of the service, do you think God can still save someone? He does. He can do it before people are walking. He can do it anytime He wants. Again, I want to be led by the Holy Spirit. If He allows me to, to do an altar call, I want to do that. But I don't want to do it because people are going, Pastor, you need to do altar calls because that's the way it's supposed to be done. And it's like, well, geez, I don't know. Give me a chapter and verse about that one. So again, God can work in any way He wants to. And sometimes it's out of our ordinary, the way we normally do it. And that's why it's hard for me to judge another church because they do it that way. And I've had people come, well, you can't believe what they're doing. It's like, Hey, man, let them go on with the bad selves. If that's what they want to do, let them do it, man. You don't have to go. But don't be tripping when you come here and you're going, well, that church did it this way and you're not doing it this way. Like, well, go back to that church, peeps. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you guys are probably thinking, are you, like, kicking us out? No, I'm not kicking you guys out. <laughs> I'm just saying. What I love about this in verse 18, it says, when they heard these things, they became silent. And I think oftentimes when we see God doing things in people's lives, it should leave us speechless in a sense. That's exactly what happened to the leaders in Jerusalem. They were having a hard time. They were refuting all these things that were going on. They were contending with Peter. And when Peter spoke to them and said, hey, listen, guys, it was a gift to them just like it was a gift to us. Who was I to stop that? It left them speechless. But what did come out of their mouth was that they glorified God. They honored God. That God had shown them that the Gentiles were now invited in. They glorified God because they say at the end, then they said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life or to life. This was something that was so big, so huge, blockbusting, and dare I say, epic. It was epic. You see, later on, the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And the Amplified, verse 18, says, says this, when they heard this, they were quieted and made no further objections. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to real life after resurrection. He gave them eternal life. 
They, they, they were afforded eternal life, not because they were special in any way. The Gentiles were afforded eternal life, not because they were like, oh my gosh, we can't have... It's like because of Jesus dying on the cross for all the world. And so it was open to all. And that's why this is huge. Verse 19 to 26, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Philistia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching uh, the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in, in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So, so the story kind of continues, but before it continues, we have to go back before we really go forward. You see, the writer of, of, of Acts, Luke, reminds us of what happened to Stephen. That was some eight, ten years ago. He reminds us of what happened to Stephen and the persecution that sprang up after that. So he uses this incident that happened to, to, to move ahead, to look ahead of what God was already doing. You see, the death of Stephen that happened a while back was still being used of the Lord to reach beyond anything Stephen ever thought he would ever reach. Stephen probably never traveled that far. Maybe he did. Maybe he was from that region. But he could never have understood what God was now doing in Antioch. It was way beyond him. I, I love the fact that that God not only was glorified at the death of Stephen and what had happened to him, but he was still being glorified years later. You see, God can and will use tragic events in our lives. He will not only use it right there and then to get us through that tragic event, but he could use that years later in our lives. And I think oftentimes we can't understand what good comes out of a tragic event that happens in me or for me or in me personally. How could God use that? And many of you guys have gone through a lot. And yet God got you through that moment and yet years later you use it as a testimony of what God can do in other people's lives. 
And that's why sometimes he allows certain things to happen because, again, we look at that the death of Stephen, you're going, why would you allow that to happen? The guy was a right-on Christian. He was a right-on believer, and yet he gets killed for that? And yet because of that, there's persecution, and the gospel goes out. And so God is able to do that even years later. And Felicia, as he mentions here, is the region that we know today as Lebanon and Syria. It's in that region right there. It's a region there. And it's along the coast. Felicia was along the coast there. And Cyprus uh, is an island that is off the coast of Felicia. And it's in the middle, or not in the middle, but over towards the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch is one of many cities that is named Antioch. But this Antioch in particular that he's talking about was in Syria. And this Antioch in Syria was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So it was a big deal. That was a big place. It was a metropolis, if you will. And then he mentions Cyrene. And Cyrene was a city in northern Africa, close to Libya. So the gospel has been preached in all these areas. It has now gone out from Jerusalem after the persecution. So when we read back in chapter, chapter I think, 8 it was, that they started going out, it's, it's reached a lot of places. It's been about 8 years, 10 years, and it's gone all over the place, and people are preaching the gospel. Again, it mentions Cyrene, which was adjoined to Libya, and there was people from Libya, if you remember, back in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost who heard the gospel and many believed. So it's believed that these cats went back to Libya area, Cyrene, and were preaching the gospel because now these people are headed over to Antioch. And it says that the hand of the Lord was upon them. For some reason, a lot of believers are converging upon Antioch. And Antioch, like I said, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It would be like a New York City, a city that never sleeps. They didn't call it the Big Apple. They called it the Big Nectarine. I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. But it was that type of city that there was just a hustle and a bustle that was happening in that place. Everything was going on. And I could guarantee you there was a lot of believers that were there going, oh my gosh, look at all this sin. There's a lot of sinners in this place. And yet God had brought them there. God was allowing them to go into this dark city that had a lot of wickedness going on day and night. And yet, it says that the believers were preaching to the Jews only. And some of them went off the grid and were preaching to the Hellenists that were there. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews, which the real Jews did not consider them real Jews. <laughs> but they were Jews. But to them, it's like, no, you're not. You're not. So again, in essence, they're going, they're the heathen, and they're being brought in because they're preaching to all of these. And it says that a great number believed, and they turned to the Lord. Understand this. This is an Antioch. It's a wicked place. 
And what is God doing? He's taking people like you and I into these wicked places to go, hey, why don't you be a light in that dark area? And you're going, oh my gosh, no. You know, it's like Peter, not so, Lord. It's like, don't say that. Okay, Lord, if that's where you're leading me into these dark places, then I want to go and be the light. And that's what these guys were doing. Now, again, as the gospel goes out, more people believe in the truth of the gospel and in Jesus Christ. But people have to go out and be willing to go out and preach and share. And I'm not saying preach behind a pulpit. I'm just saying sharing the gospel with people. As as I was thinking about this, as I was driving to church and knowing this portion of Scripture, I'm going, Lord, I get the opportunity to be out and about in our community. I get to be with our family. And and, and God puts me in situations sometimes like, yes, and it's pretty dark sometimes. But I love it because, again, I want to be that light, right? But I was thinking, Lord, what you've called me actually to do is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Because I don't know how many people are in here right now, but you're going in those many directions. (laughs) And it's probably pretty dark where you end up sometimes. Because you have to work there, or you have to live there. Or whatever the case is, you have to be around people. And this is what Romans 10 Uh, 14 to 15 says how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of preach of of peace (laughs) who bring glad tidings of good things. We're called to go out. But you see, these guys, just like us, we don't go out on our own, or we shouldn't. Not on our own strength or our own power or knowledge. In other words, they didn't go out in their own power. It says that the the hand of the Lord was with them. That is, the presence of the Lord was with them with power with power. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit and that power was going out of them. And so a great number learned or believed. They adhered to, trusted in, and relied upon the Lord. And it says that they turned and surrendered themselves to God. And and what I love about this whole thing is that it's not up to us to save anyone. It's not up to us to say, we we, we don't have to do that. But it is up to us to share the gospel. To bring the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we find ourselves. And to tell people what He has done. Not what Calvary Chapel has done for them. Not what you have done for them. What Jesus has done for them in dying for their sins. That's what we get to go do. I get to stand here and say, hey, peeps, let's go. But I'm not those kind of guys that says, you guys go come back and tell me in my office. (laughs) Dude, I love being out and about. (laughs) And it's a scary time. I remember walking into a store and somebody said, hey, Pastor Zeke. I'm going, I have no clue who this guy is. (laughs) I have no clue. But I love the fact that it's like it's a small town. And I better check myself. (laughs) Because there's people out there, right? 
And guess what? Some people might recognize, hey, don't you go to that church over there? It's like, oh, maybe I should walk off to this aisle and put that back. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Anyways, be that as it may. Let me move on here. I love the fact that the Lord can use a few to go out and a large number can come in and believe and trust in the Lord. And if he can use a few, that's good. But can you imagine what he could do with a lot? <laughs> there would be more people coming in to hear the gospel. Whether, it, whether they ever walk into this building or not, they hear the gospel. And God meets them right where they're at. It says in verse 22, then news of these, th of, of these things, um, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so somehow the church in Jerusalem always catches wind of what actually is going on. around. And, and, and it's interesting because they felt the responsibility to be able to send people to go see that make sure everything is, is, is going on. And this time they send Barnabas. They sent out Barnabas, which was an amazing choice because Barnabas was, was from the area. He knew the area. He, he had come from the island of Cyprus. And so I'm sure when he came from the island of Cyprus, he went right into Phoenicia and into uh, Antioch in that area. So he knew that area. And so now uh, Antioch was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem which would have taken Barnabas, and I'm sure there was other guys that went with them. It probably would take them, if they went on an average you know, pace, about two weeks to get there. And so he gets there, and he comes, and Barnabas, true to his name, son of encouragement, he comes there, and he encourages the church that was there, and that's what they needed. The world always comes against the church, and the worst thing that we can do as a church is come against a church <laughs> or the church. And so again, I love the fact that, that he went, and in the Amplified, verse 23 says, when he arrived and saw that grace, favor, God, God, God's favor, was bestowed upon them, he was full of joy and was continuously exhorting, warning, urging, and encouraging them to cleave unto and remain faithful to and devote to or devoted to the Lord with resolute and steady purpose of heart. And so the writer Luke gives us a little insight at the, as, at, at the type of person that Barnabas was. And I think it's really encouraging to us to kind of get a picture of this cat Barnabas. Because again, he, his characteristics are those kinds of things that we should desire as Christians. Well, we want to be not like Barnabas, we want to be like Jesus, but Barnabas was like Jesus. And so again, he gives us that that opportunity to see this guy of, of who he is, especially if God sends us out to minister to people in any way, shape, or form, that we would have those kinds of characteristics to be a good man, to be full of the Holy Spirit and faithful, to go out and do the work. It says that then Barnabas, in verse 25, departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And, and, and so as the people are being added to the Lord and being converted to Christianity in this sense, Barnabas needs some help. And he couldn't think of anybody better to help him than for Saul. And so it says that he went up to Tarsus. That's where Saul's hometown was. And so he would have to go another 150 miles north and then loop west to get to 
Tarsus, or he could have taken a boat which was like half that distance. But be that as it may, Barnabas thought that it would be worthwhile to go and get Saul to come back so they can minister together. And so for a whole year, these guys ministered together and they ministered to the people. And most believe that Paul was, or Saul was already ministering to a lot of the Gentiles up in Tarsus. But they came together. And it says in verse 26 that it was there in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That, that last part of, of Christians, because again, it wasn't the, 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 the disciples that started calling themselves that. That last part of Christian, the I-A-N part, means uh, or meant belong to, of the part of, a partisan of. In other words, you belong to that party. So because the believers preached Christ and they were associated with Him as being a part of Him, the people started calling them Christians, which meant little Christ. And it's interesting because I, as I was reading about this, it wasn't until the second century onward that, that, that the term Christianity was actually a title of honor. They took it on to themselves, whereas because, or before, they were kind of, oh, you're one of those Christians because you belong to Christ, be that as it may. It's like nowadays, it's like right on, it's an honor to be called the Christian. Verse 27 to the end of the chapter here, it says, And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judah or Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so here we have. A year has gone by from verse 26 to 27, and the church sends some prophets up to Antioch. And again, the term prophets is used in the New Testament, and, and it signifies a teacher, but in this instance is one who is uh, under divine inspiration to be able to foretell the future. And so this certain guy, Agabus, who was probably a teacher or a preacher of some kind, he also had the gift of a prophet. And he goes and he, and he tells them, hey, there's going to be a, a big famine. It's going to be worldwide, if you will. And it says that it happened under Claudius Caesar, Emperor Claudius, and he reigned from about 40 AD, 41 AD to 54 AD. And so uh, apparently in that time frame, there was a lot that was going on. But I love the fact that these Christians, these believers in Antioch, they heard what was going on with the church in Jerusalem or in Judea area, and they, they wanted to show their appreciation and their love. And so they sent of gift to them, monetary gift, and they sent it by, by the hands of Paul and Barnabas, or Saul, Saul and Barnabas. And, and I'm sure that the elders that, that were there really appreciated it, but I'm sure it was a humbling experience given the fact that at first they really didn't believe that God could actually use these guys. And now they're ministering to them. And what an awesome uh, thing it was. And I, I, I just thought as I close here... 
God has a way of leveling up the playing field. He, he, he raises some up and brings some down so that we can all be on the same plane. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, for, for being our God, for just reminding us of your word and how awesome it is, Lord God, that you do things that, Lord, we can't even imagine at times, Lord. Father, I know that you would never go against your word. But Lord, there's times that you stretch us and you open doors for us, Lord God, that are out of the ordinary, that maybe for us, we don't experience on a regular basis, Lord. And we want to be open as, as, as individuals and as a church, Lord God, that, that you would show us through your word what we do and what we don't do, Lord. And that, Father, you would bless the other churches around our community, Lord, that are different than ours, Lord. That, Father, you would bless the people that are there. And those who will be going there, Lord God, that you would encourage them and just help them to, to stay biblical as well, Lord. And so we look to you, Lord, for, for what you're doing in our community, in our life, in our culture, Lord. That, Lord, you transcend all of these things. And so, Lord, use us in any way you see fit, Lord God. We bless you and we thank you. I pray for my brethren here, Lord God, that you would bless them as they walk out these doors. I pray for anyone who has walked in these doors, Lord God, and doesn't truly know you. That, Lord, even today, they would understand that you're calling them, that you're drawing them into the kingdom of heaven. And that, Lord, right where they sit, Lord, they would repent. That they would ask you for forgiveness, Lord. And that you would come in, Lord God, and change their life forever. And so we love you for that, Lord. We thank you that you work in spite of us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing this last song. If you need prayer for any.